The word religion is a word that causes a lot of confusion today. Is it a good or a bad thing? What do we even mean when we talk about religion? Is it just the grouping that you feel most connected to because of your family background? Is it just the box you tick on your census form? Is religion a set of beliefs that you sign up to? Is it a set of rituals and rules that you keep? When someone says, I'm not very religious, what do they mean? Christmas is a religious festival, but what does that mean? Last week, there's been lots of discussion about whether school nativity plays should go ahead this year. Is that what we mean when we call Christmas religious? Is it about letting the kids do their play, keeping alive the story of the shepherds and the angels with the baby somewhere in the middle of it all? It might be surprising to hear that the Bible doesn't actually use the words religion and religious very often at all. But in our passage this morning, James does use the words. And in the passage we're going to read, he gives us a clear and simple explanation of faultless religion. If you're using one of the church Bibles, turn with me to uh, James chapter 1, which is on page 1213, or in the larger print Bibles, 1880. James chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 19 down to the end of the chapter in verse 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. The words religion and religious don't appear until the last couple of verses there, but the whole passage actually 
is about what counts as faultless religion as far as God is concerned. And James explains it with two simple instructions. If you want your religion to be acceptable to God, then listen carefully and obey carefully. First, in verses 19 to 21, listen carefully. Receive God's life-changing word. At first, verse 19 might sound like one of those nice practical proverbs that have nothing to do with religion. Surely even an atheist would agree it's good to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Isn't that just general good advice about how to relate to other people? Well, yes, it is. But in the context of this passage, James is talking specifically about being quick to listen to God. And he's talking to people who claim to be Christians. If you glance back up just one verse to verse 18, there James spoke about God giving us birth through the word of truth. We saw last week that word of truth is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that he is the son of God who became one of us. And he did that to die in our place so we could be forgiven of our sins and brought into fellowship with God. Those who listen to and receive that word of truth about Jesus are born again. They begin a new life. They're no longer slaves to sin and heading for hell. They're men and women who have been made new on the inside. And they're heading for an eternity with God. Someone has said, the first duty we owe God is to listen to him. The first duty we owe God is to listen to him. And that is true. As human beings, our greatest sin is not listening to God. We're very good at spouting our own thoughts and opinions about all sorts of things, including God. But what he calls us to do is listen to him. We will never know him unless we listen to him. And in fact, we will never really know ourselves unless we listen to God. And that is true when it comes to being delivered from our sin and beginning a new life in God's family. That change does not come about through our own effort and ingenuity. If you and I set out to fix things between us and God in our own way, we are doomed to fail. We will never truly know him through our own effort. And our sins will never be forgiven that way either. Things are fixed between us and God when we listen to what he says about his son Jesus. And then accept that good news of salvation. There is no other way to salvation. The first duty we owe God is to listen to him. And that does not end when we trust in Jesus. 
Look down to what James says at the end of verse 21. He says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. James is talking here to people who have accepted the good news about Jesus. They have been given new birth. God's word has taken root in their hearts. It is planted in them. And now, James says, you're to go on listening to God's word, humbly accepting it. Our first duty is still to listen to God. Why does James say the word planted in them can save them? Hasn't it saved them already? Yes, we are saved when we trust in Jesus. God pronounces us not guilty. He accepts us as his son or daughter. But the full enjoyment of our salvation is still in the future. We look forward to final deliverance from the power of sin and death. That will happen when Christ returns. And in verse 21, James is saying, until that final deliverance, you must go on listening to God. Go on humbly accepting his word. Go on trusting the life-changing word about Jesus. Don't be distracted from it. Don't allow yourself to begin hoping and trusting in other saviors, whether those are precious people or precious things that you're tempted to trust in. Don't be distracted. Keep listening to the word about Jesus that gave you new birth. And keep listening to the rest of God's word in Scripture. Receive it as the final authority and the decisive guide for your life. Receive it as the word that will go on changing you into the likeness of Jesus. The first duty we owe God is to listen to him. And in verses 19 to 21, as well as making that point, James pinpoints two things that can hinder us from listening to God. Our demanding hearts and distracting sin. He tells us if we're, if we're going to listen carefully and receive God's life-changing word, we need to learn to quieten our demanding hearts. In verse 19, if we're going to be quick to listen, we must learn to be slow to speak and slow to become angry. Though we often find it hard to listen to God because we have so many demands to make of him. And we have so many strongly held opinions about how things ought to go. We have so many grievances about what other people have been doing to us or not doing for us. Isn't it true that much of our waking life can be filled with the noise of our own pontifications about things? And the anger that comes when things don't go our way. And it really doesn't matter if we're quiet and reserved people who would never voice our pontifications or express our anger. I'm a quiet person myself. 
But my head can be full of grand speeches that I feel like making. And that stuff can spin round and round in our minds. It can be so loud inside of us that unless we quiet it all down, listening to God is a non-starter for us. This noise actually comes from our hearts. That is the source of our arrogant opinions and our angry demands. And in verse 20, James says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Why? Because our anger drowns out what God is saying. It stops us from listening to his life-changing word. We might open our Bibles, we might even read our Bibles, but we're not going to hear them. We're not going to, going to humbly accept God's word till we learn to quieten our demanding hearts. In the presence of God, we have to wrestle our hearts into silence and listen to him instead of to our heart. Can we do that? Is that possible? Yes. We can tell our hearts to shut up. And we can do that because we have someone more important to listen to. And because as Christians, we know that our hearts already belong to God. As noisy and demanding as they can be, God's word is already planted there. James has told us that. God has already begun his new creation work in our hearts. We can quieten them in his presence. It may take a few moments of conscious effort from us, but in his presence, we can quieten the noise and we can listen to the king of our hearts. And if we're going to listen carefully and receive God's life-changing word, we also need to set aside distracting sin. In the context of listening to God, James says, get rid of all moral filth, in verse 21, and the evil that is so prevalent. And don't we all know how sin stops us listening from, to God? If we're trying to excuse some sin or keep a little corner of our lives set aside for sin, we're simply not able to listen to God. If we're treasuring sin, then we've made an idol of it. We've made a little God of it. We're saying, really, it's the thing that we cannot live without. And so we're not ready to listen to the true God. We're not ready to listen to him until we turn from the idol. The first duty we owe God is to listen to him. And that is where true religion begins. It begins by listening to and accepting the good news about Jesus. And in order to go on listening to God... 
we may have to set aside some sinful rubbish in our lives. And we may have to quieten our chattering, demanding hearts. Well, so far, so good. But the danger at this point is that we start thinking listening is all there is to it. That our first duty is our only duty. But James is only half done with what he has to say about this. In verses 22 to 27, he gives us a second instruction. Faultless religion is not just about listening carefully. We must also obey carefully. Put God's life-claiming word into practice. Notice how James speaks about God's word differently in these verses. In verse 21, it was a word of salvation. It can save you. Now, if you look in verse 25, James calls it the law. And I don't think he's talking about two different words from God here. It's the same word. The saving, life-changing word is also the life-claiming word. It's a word we must obey. When we talk about the law, we usually mean the Old Testament law, the first five books of the Old Testament. A few weeks ago, we finished looking at a chunk of that in the book of Deuteronomy. And certainly, in this letter, James does quote from the law books of the Old Testament. But scholars tell us that James's letter contains more echoes of Jesus' teaching than any other New Testament book does. Jesus' teaching is also law for God's people. And Jesus taught that after he returned to heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit to guide his disciples to write truth from God. And that means the rest of the New Testament is law as well. So when James talks about the law, he means all of Scripture, the whole Bible. But why use the word law in such an unusual way? Well, James does it to make the point that the Bible is not only a life-changing word of salvation, it is equally a life-claiming word of instruction. It is the law for God's saved people. And that is why James says in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Why would you be deceiving yourself if you only listen to God's word? You'd be deceiving yourself because God causes people to do more than just listen. We're deceiving ourselves if we think listening is enough. Because the fact is, some of us actually really enjoy listening to the Word. We find the historical details of the Bible fascinating. We love a good chew on the deep doctrines of the Bible. Some of us find it invigorating to work through a commentary on Scripture. Or to have a ding-dong debate with someone about the Trinity. Or about creation or predestination or the end times. Some of us love that kind of debate. 
And we love soaking up sermons. So much so that we go to conferences or we go online to get more than just the standard dose of two Sunday sermons. And all of that is good. Verses 19 to 21 have told us that's so good. But it's no good if all of that listening doesn't turn into doing. Listen to the warning a preacher called Mark Dever gives about this. He says, hearing and understanding something the Bible says, but not making sure that it translates into how you live is quite dangerous. I fear that many religious people in churches have a toxic buildup of religious knowledge that is not lived out. When something is toxic, it's poisonous. And religious knowledge can become toxic when it is not lived out. Our knowledge can turn into poisonous pride. We can begin to think that we are superior to all those uninformed Christians who haven't read the books we've read. Or who can't debate the finer points of doctrine with us. And that pride can produce superiority and harshness in us. Religious knowledge does become toxic when it's not lived out. And that's because it's meant to be lived out. That's what it's for. The problem is not with the knowledge, it's with us. When we think that hearing and understanding is an end in itself. That's where the toxicity comes from. Knowledge becomes toxic when it doesn't flow out into a life of careful obedience. And James says, knowledge that isn't lived out defeats the whole purpose of getting the knowledge in the first place. Look at verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I suppose there's more than one reason you might look in a mirror. Maybe some of us do it just to admire ourselves because we think we're the fairest of them all and we're worth one more look. But probably most of us have given up on being the fairest of them all. We just want to make sure we're vaguely presentable. And so we look in the mirror, don't we, in order to take action in response to what we see. We look in the mirror in order to pop that zit that we see, or to flatten down the tufty bits in our hair, or try and turn the flattened bits into tufty bits whatever is required by what we see in the mirror. A few weeks ago, I looked in the mirror and discovered I'd knocked a chunk out of my front tooth while I was brushing my teeth. I don't know what that says about my brushing technique, but that's what happened. And in response to what I saw in the mirror, I went and did something. Actually, it took me a couple of weeks 
But eventually, what I saw in the mirror resulted in action. I called the dentist, and he charged me a fortune to fill in the missing chunk. It would have been pointless learning from the mirror about my broken tooth and then doing nothing about it. And it is equally pointless, James says, to learn from God's word and do nothing about that. And we shouldn't assume that doing something about it will always mean some action or behavior. Often it will mean that, but it might mean changing our thinking about someone or something. It might mean looking at an issue or a situation in a new light and then changing our attitude to that issue or that situation. For example, if our reading of God's word doesn't result in us becoming more thankful people and more helpful people, more patient and forgiving people and more hopeful people, if it doesn't result in those kind of things, then we are not putting into practice what we read. When I was a teenager, I worked in a Christian bookshop on Saturdays for a few years. And every month, a local doctor would come in and he would buy the next month's edition of daily Bible reading notes. And so I knew that he was a keen Bible reader. I can't imagine he would diligently keep buying the notes every month if he didn't read them. But the trouble was, that doctor was known as the most mean-spirited and insensitive doctor in our whole town. In fact, my family experienced his lack of care firsthand. He was pretty unkind to my grandmother when my grandfather was dying. And he was known for that sort of thing over the whole time. That doctor was listening to God's word all right, at some level anyway, he was reading it. But there was a sad failure on his part to put into practice what he read. Now, please don't get me wrong. We all, all of us have days when we fail miserably. We fall flat on our face in terms of obedience to God's word. We do. And none of us would like to be judged on those days of miserable failure. But the point is, if over time, our listening to God's word makes no noticeable difference to our lives, then we have to ask ourselves, am I missing the fact that I'm called to obey carefully? to put God's life-claiming word into practice. And for our encouragement in this, look again how James describes this life-claiming word. In verse 25, it is the perfect law that gives freedom. And later in the verse, those who do it will be blessed in what they do. So obedience to God's word does not ruin our life. It enhances it. It leads us into the life we were created to live. 
It leads us away from anxiety and towards peace. Away from the things that imprison us and toward the things that free us. Away from the things that poison us and toward the things that heal us. Obedience to God's word causes our lives to be a blessing to those around us. The more we obey God's life-claiming word, the more we become life-giving people. One writer says, Life is never better without God's word, and it is never poorer with it. No command will ever work against us if we follow it. And ignoring one will never actually end up being better for us. That might be a good statement to write in the front of our Bibles. As we seek to take on board James's call to obey carefully. It's never bad for us. And in the last two verses of our passage, in verses 26 and 27, James highlights three aspects of what's involved in putting God's life-claiming word into practice. I say he highlights them because he's going to return to them in more detail as the letter goes on. He mentions them here just to set the agenda for the rest of the letter. Look at verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Putting God's life-claiming word into practice involves self-discipline, service, and separation. Keeping a tight rein on our tongue is an example of self-discipline. And no doubt James chooses this particular example because he knows many of us who are self-disciplined in other ways are not self-disciplined in this way. We'd never commit murder, we'd never commit adultery, we'd never get drunk, for example, but we don't show much control when it comes to our use of words. Scornful words, belittling words, slanderous words, backstabbing words, boastful words, exaggerating words, misleading words, even deceiving words. We don't hold them back. But James says we must learn to hold them back if we're going to put God's life-claiming word into practice. Then, as an example of service, James mentions looking after orphans and widows in their distress. And he's writing in a society where there was no social care, of course, and there were very few options when it came to women supporting themselves. So widows were in real difficulty, and so were orphans. And all through his instruction to his people, God shows his own deep concern for the vulnerable. 
And he calls us all through his word to show the same concern in our actions. To help the helpless. Whether they're orphans and widows or immigrants or the handicapped, whoever the vulnerable are in our society. Again, James will have more to say on this later in the letter. And the third aspect of obedience he mentions here is separation. At the end of verse 27, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The world here means humanity and its rebellion against God. Including its rejection of what his word says about good and evil. And it's really significant that James mentions this side by side with the call to social action. Caring for orphans and widows. It's significant that he lays them side by side because often as Christians we prefer to choose one or the other. Some Christians will be all about social action. They're more than willing to get their hands dirty with that. But they're not prepared to differ from the views of our society in terms of the lifestyles that are celebrated and promoted. So if the prevailing view, for example, is that gay marriage is okay, then these Christians will feel tempted to say, shouldn't we just update the Bible to fit with that view? On the other hand, some Christians will be very careful not to conform to the ungodly outlook and practices of our society, but it never crosses their minds to look after those in need. And here James is saying very pointedly in verse 27, it is not an either-or situation. It's both and. Putting God's life-claiming word into practice involves both acts of service for those in need and it involves upholding God's instruction about what kind of lifestyle is pleasing to him and what is not. So careful obedience will mean we're involved in caring for people and we're committed to living a different kind of life than the ungodly lives we see all around us. And depending on our personality, we are going to be drawn to one of those. And we will be tempted to turn up our nose at the other. And that's exactly why James lays them both together. Does it to show us careful obedience does not mean whatever kind of obedience comes easily to me. It means we are equally careful to obey in the areas that don't come easily at all. Does all this seem hard? Well, then thank God that as you and I commit to this, we know he is already at work in us. And he will continue his work. If we are trusting in Jesus, then he has already given us new birth. 
through the good news about Jesus. He has already planted his word in our hearts, James says. And so we know deep down that God's instruction is perfect. We know it gives freedom. We know it leads to blessing. Deep down, we're already convinced of that. And so as we commit to listening and obeying, we're going with the work God is already doing in us. If we belong to Jesus, this is not a commitment to live against the grain. This is about living with the grain, going in the direction God has already begun to move us. And so as we join together in a song, in response to God's word, this song is a prayer that God would help us as we choose to listen and obey, that he would help us walk within the light of his word. The words of this may not be familiar to you, but I think the tune will be. Show me how to stand for justice. Let's join in this together. Teach my heart to trust. 
Mais 